Nature abhors a vacuum, said Aristotle in Book 4 of his Physics, and true enough, the human mind certainly abhors unanswered questions, especially when the stakes are high, like when someone dies, or when nine people die on a mountainside found in various states of undress with odd unexplainable injuries and missing body parts. The strange and provocative events of the Dyatlov Pass incident, which has kept ufologists, cryptozoologists, and those who distrust the government in general busy theorizing for 62 years. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in The Clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain, that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Dyatlov Pass Incident. On January 27, 1959, 10 outdoorsy types, 8 men and 2 women, from the Euro Polytechnical Institute in Yekaterinburg, in what was then the Soviet Union, set out on a 305-kilometer-long cross-country skiing outing. The point of the trek was for the participants to get the highest trekking certification in the country by doing a difficult hike more than 300 kilometers long. They all already had the second highest certification level, and they were going for the third and final one. The specific goal was Gora Ortoten, or Mount Ortoten, at the northern edge of the Sverdlovsk Oblast, pretty much on the border with the Komi Republic. They traveled over 600 kilometers north of Yekaterinburg to the small village of Vijay on the edge of an uninhabited wilderness, first by train and then by truck before setting out on the hike. Upon arrival in Vijay, one member, Yuri Yudin, had to drop out due to a number of health issues, including rheumatism and a heart defect, and he had severe pains in his knees and joints. The group leader, Igor Dyatlov, told Yudin that he'd send a telegram to the sports club back in the city that they all belonged to when the group returned to Vijay after achieving the goal of Mount Ortoten, probably around February 12th, but it might be a little bit later. So, now they were nine. On February 1st, they set up camp in a pass on the eastern side of the mountain Kolat Syakl, a mountain 10 kilometers or so south of Mount Ortoten. Yuri Yudin returned to Yekaterinburg and waited for his friends to telegram. No telegram came on the 12th, or on the 13th, or on the 14th, nor in the following days. On February 20th, relatives of the hikers joined with the head of the Technical Institute to create a search party made up of students and teachers. On February 26th, a student named Mikhail Shavarin found the group's tent. It was torn and covered in snow and had been abandoned. It was also pitched incorrectly, which was a bit odd for such experienced wilderness hikers. The most striking thing about the tent is it seemed to have been cut open from inside with a knife. 
Inside the tent, they found all of the group's belongings still there, including most of their shoes. Nine sets of footprints could be seen in the snow, some clearly people just wearing socks and some of them even barefoot, and one, maybe two of them wearing one shoe, but not their second shoe. The prints led to the edge of some woods about one and a half kilometers to the northeast. At the edge of the woods, they found two bodies as well as the remains of a small fire. The bodies were those of Yuri Doroshenko and Grigory Krivoneshenko, who was called Yuri by his friends, another Yuri. The two men were dressed only in their underwear and had no shoes on. They had died from hypothermia, which means they had frozen to death. Above them, tree branches were broken off as high as five meters, which led investigators to think that maybe they had climbed the trees looking for something, maybe trying to find their camp. After some further searching, three more bodies were found between the camp and the woods, spaced a couple of hundred meters apart. They found the body of group leader Igor Dyatlov, Rostim Slobodin, and one of the ladies, Zenaida Komogorova. The positions of their bodies made it seem like maybe they'd been trying to return to the camp. They were all dead from hypothermia. Slobodin, however, had a small crack in his skull, but it was determined that the freezing is actually what killed him. It's estimated that temperatures in the area at night dropped to between minus 25 and minus 30 degrees Celsius. So, maybe they left the tent without much clothing on for some weird reason, and then they got lost and then froze to death while trying to find their tent. But what about the other four bodies? Well, they couldn't find them. Searches continued, and in May, the other four bodies were discovered. They were in a ravine about 75 meters further into the woods from where the first bodies had been found, covered in about four meters of snow at the bottom of a creek. There was Alexander Kolevatov, who was missing his eyebrows, but seems to have died of hypothermia, like the ones they'd found back in February, and no further injuries. Nikolai Thibault Brinoye did not die from hypothermia, but had a skull fracture from some kind of terrific force, and that is what killed him. A later coroner's report would say it was a force similar to that of a high-speed car crash. Ludmila Dubnina was also found. Now, she was wearing Grivonyshenko's torn and burned trousers. He was one of the bodies found back in February, and her left foot was wrapped up in torn-off bits of a coat. She also did not freeze to death. Instead, she had some kind of major chest fracture, and internal bleeding from this is what killed her. However, she had no soft tissue or external wounds, so it's the kind of injury that would occur if she had been exposed to extremely high pressure. She was also missing her eyes, tongue, parts of her lips, some skin from her face, and also some skull fragments. Again, the injuries she suffered, apart from the missing little bits, were wholly internal. She had no external damage at all. And finally, they found Semyon Zolotaryov, who liked to be called Alexander. He was wearing Dubinina's hat and coat. He had a major chest fracture and also no external wounds, which is also probably what killed him. And he was also missing his eyeballs. Weirdly enough, he had a camera hung on a strap around his neck, but the film was too badly degraded to be able to develop. Some of the clothing seemed to have cuts or rips in them, like maybe they were torn off of someone who had been wearing them. Many of the missing bits were thought to have occurred after they died. However, Ludmila had a lot of blood in her stomach, so it was thought maybe her tongue had been removed while she was still alive or maybe right after she died before her blood could congeal and it ran down her throat into her stomach. So you've got one person missing his eyebrows, 
but died of hypothermia like the others. You've got one who died from some kind of terrific skull fracture and two who seemed to die from terrific chest fractures. And in the last three people, there were no external wounds. CSI, CSI Dead, Dead Mountain. Mountain. So the bodies were all found, as I've described them in the past, on Kolotsyakal, which means Dead Mountain in the language of the local people, who are a reindeer herding group of people called the Mansi. The word Kolot also means meager, and it's thought maybe the name might have indicated that there's nothing to hunt or eat up there, so it's meager, it's dead, there's no reason to go up there. Interestingly enough, the mountain that was their ultimate goal on the trek, Ortoten, in Mansi means don't go there. They'd all died between six and eight hours after they'd last eaten. All forensic evidence suggested that they all left the camp on their own power, on foot. They hadn't been dragged away or anything like that. None of them were dressed correctly for the freezing cold weather, suggesting that maybe they'd left in a big hurry. And again, the tent had been cut or possibly torn open from the inside. Of course, the first thought was that maybe it was those local Mansi people who were responsible. There was nothing to indicate there had been any other people besides the nine hikers in the area. And the Mansi people were as befuddled as the Soviet investigators, and they're also known for being rather famously peaceful. Plus, the force that caused the chest injuries and the skull injury was far greater than anything a human being could produce. So police kicked around a number of narratives that might fit the evidence. Maybe it was an avalanche. Could that account for the injuries and the sudden evacuation of the tent? Or maybe it was a snow slab. This is a mass of fresh snow with low water volume sitting on top of a weaker layer of snow, and then the top sort of slides off down slope, creating a kind of a battering ram. Except that there was no evidence of an avalanche. Since the events we're describing, there have been numerous expeditions to the area, over a hundred, and no one has ever reported seeing the conditions for an avalanche in that area. Well, maybe the winds were abnormally strong and they got blown away while they were sleeping, some being injured, like maybe smashing into a tree or something, and the rest of them got lost in the dark and then froze to death. There's a thing called a catabatic wind, which has been known to reach hurricane speeds coming down a mountain slope. Yet the tent was still standing, so probably not. But maybe a weirdly strong gust of wind blew one of them away, and then the others ran out to rescue that person in a rush, and events unfolded. Okay, maybe they got drunk and argued. I mean, these are Russians we're talking about, right? Except there was no signs that there had been any drinking or any drugs. They were all very good friends and experienced wilderness hikers and campers. And apart from a little bit of medical alcohol for disinfecting wounds, there was no alcohol present at all. Back in Yekaterinburg, friends said that they had all sworn off drinking entirely for the length of their trek. Could it have been animals? Again, there were no tracks of people and there were no tracks of animals in the area. Again, the chest and head wounds with no damage to the skin, but internal crushing of the bones wouldn't have been caused by an animal either. There is an odd phenomenon called paradoxical undressing or paradoxical stripping that accounts for about 20 to 50% of all hypothermia deaths. 
As the body temperature plummets, the body gets colder than the freezing air around the person, and so the person, paradoxically, begins to feel extremely hot. This happens because blood vessels contract as the body starts getting tired from burning all that energy to try and stay warm, and then blood rushes to the extremities, which start to feel warm. So the people feel really hot, and they begin to strip off all their clothes in an effort to cool down, which drops their core temperature even more, and then they die. However, while the hikers' bodies were all scantily dressed, exactly as if they'd been woken up and fled in haste, the clothes they weren't wearing were all back in the tent. They weren't scattered about the area. So it, it was a head-scratcher. I mean, it kind of looked like maybe there was some kind of a freak-out or something startled or panicked them so much that they ran out of the tent, even cutting their way or tearing their way out of it, and they immediately dashed into the cold night, and then they got lost. They tried to survive and find their campsite, but they failed. Three of them fell in the darkness and somehow get injured, dying from those injuries. Except the footprints in the snow they left behind are consistent with people going at a walking pace, not running in a panic. But anyway, something apparently made them leave the tent. The real mysteries are the tent being torn and those injuries, the skull fracture and the two chest injuries, which again are almost exactly like they'd been hit by a car going at top speed. All told, the prosecutor's office for the area explored 75 separate theories as to what might have happened that night of February 1st. The official result at the inquest declared that they had died due to, quote, a compelling natural force that they could not overcome, and that was that. That vague wording seemed to say that something very powerful, but maybe natural, hit their tent so hard they were blown through it and scattered like bowling pins, some being injured, the rest unable to find their way back in the snowstorm, and dying. Weird story for sure, but, well, the world can be weird, right? The pass was named the Dyatlov Pass after the group leader, radio engineering student Igor Dyatlov, one of the nine victims. Files on the investigation went into a secret Soviet archive where they remained for a long time because, you know, Soviet Russia didn't really like weird and unexplained things. Moldervich and Skolina, Russia's own X-File. The official answer is really not much of an answer, an overwhelming force they could not overcome. And there was a lot of speculation about the weird deaths. There were lots of groundless theories with little or no basis in actual fact. Plus, more oddness surrounding the events of February 1st to 2nd, 1959 came to light. Orange balls of light were supposedly seen in the area by another group of hikers about 50 kilometers south of the campsite at the Dyatlov Pass. A number of other people in the area also said they had seen orange balls of light, including some military personnel, all through the months of February and March that year. It's now thought that these lights might have been missile tests, which records show happened the following night, not the night that all of this happened. And so maybe people just kind of got, got it all mixed up in their heads. Of course, some people think that the orange balls of light were UFOs. In fact, the Dyatlov Pass incident is usually included on lists of UFO incidents, mainly because that's what Lev Ivanov, the guy who led the 1959 Soviet government inquest, thought that it was all about whenever he talked about it in private. 
He said his team had heard about the orange balls. He started to look into it and immediately got orders from on high to totally disregard any reports of orange balls of light. After the wall came down in 1990, he would again say that he for sure thought that these mysterious spheres of orange light were somehow linked to the deaths of the hikers and that he believed that they were UFOs. Interestingly, a camera was recovered from inside the tent And the very last picture taken is an indistinct sort of of out-of-focus light of some kind. Some people say, maybe it was a UFO. It doesn't look like firelight, so what is it? We don't know because it's completely out of focus. It's just a bunch of circles. Of course, there are plenty of other theories as to what happened as well. Over the years, many creative minds have looked into the information available about the events at the Dyatlov Pass. And when the Cold War ended, more people started talking, and more than a few mentioned the UFO angle. However, there were some other theories as well. There was a gulag nearby, and some people thought maybe some prisoners had escaped and then tussled with the hikers, and then it was all covered up because it's embarrassing to have prisoners escape from your forced labor camp, right? Doesn't look good for the government. A variant on this is that maybe the guards looking for the escaped prisoners came across the hikers, thought they were the prisoners, and a fight ensued, and they got killed, and then that was covered up. All of this, again, is unlikely because there were no signs of a struggle, there are no other footprints, and those weird injuries. Yuri Kensevich, another Yuri, a 12-year-old boy, attended the funeral of the first five dead hikers, and he remembered that they all had a, quote, deep brown tan. He later would become the head of the Dyatlov Foundation, which is devoted to figuring out what actually happened that night. Other people who attended the funeral say that there were some burns on the bodies. And let's not forget that Ludmila Dubnina was wearing one of the other men's trousers, which had been burnt. Still, other people who were at the funeral said that they weren't burned, they had a kind of a weird orange cast to their skin. And still others said that all of the dead hikers' hair had turned white or gray, even though they were only in their 20s. In his 1990 book, The Price of State Secrets is Nine Lives, Anatoly Gushchin claimed that he had special access to the original 1959 files, and his theory was that the hikers had fallen bafoul of a secret Soviet's weapons test. That's what those orange light balls were. He also said at least one of the bodies had received a very high dose of radiation. Others leapt on this, but went for a more conventional weapons-based explanation, which was that the Soviets were testing parachute mines that exploded above the ground, freaked out the hikers, who didn't know what the hell that was. They cut their way out of the tent, bolted into the night in various states of undress. The strange anomalous injuries could have been caused by the force from these aerial explosions. And then it was all covered up, of course. Or maybe, others said, after all, these were students at the Polytechnical Institute, one of the most important institutions of its kind in Soviet Russia. Maybe they knew about weapons tests, and they had been singled out and essentially assassinated to stop them from becoming whistleblowers. After all, they were in their 20s and perhaps idealistic. Still, other people said that the Soviets had been working on something called a vacuum bomb, which is also known as a a thermobaric bomb, which are nasty, nasty, really nasty things. But they don't work well at high altitudes like this. In 2013, American filmmaker Donnie Eichar wrote a fairly well-regarded book titled Dead Mountain, The Untold True Story of the Dyatlov Pass Incident that 
postulated that it was something called infrasound. This occurs when mountains produce a very low hum, under 20 hertz, as a result of wind hitting them. Uh, Other things also cause this infrasound, earthquakes, for example. It's a real thing. It can't be consciously picked up by human ears, but it can cause strange physiological reactions in people like shortness of breath, elevated heart rates, nausea, dread, and even outright panic. Animals can also sometimes hear infrasound, which is why sometimes animals will panic when a tsunami is approaching or right before a big earthquake because they hear the low rumble. Sometimes sound can sort of coalesce through a process known as vortex shedding, which is a great name for a band, by the way. It combines into something called a Karman vortex street. This occurs in sound, but also in fluids and gases. In the everyday world, this is what makes telephone and power lines sort of sing with that high-pitched sound in the breeze. Essentially, what this is is a feedback system that amplifies and makes the sound sort of pulse or oscillate in a regular fashion. If there was infrasound coming down the slope from the winter storm winds hitting the mountainside just right, and then that sound funneled down into the pass where the hikers were sleeping, this might have caused sudden feelings of panic, terror, disorientation, which made them cut themselves out of the tent and flee into the storm, getting lost and dying. The head and chest injuries, who the heck knows. Other people say maybe it was a creature, but a hitherto unknown creature, like a yeti. The region still abounds with tales of the Zolotaya Baba, or Golden Hag, a strange pagan goddess type. Maybe these legends are about some yet undiscovered yeti-like creature. In 2014, the Discovery Channel aired a program called Russian Yeti, The Killer Lives. Real, real responsible reportage there. And this tried very, very hard to suggest that this is, in fact, what happened to the hikers. Again, however, there were no tracks found apart from those of the hikers. There is the whole missing tongues and eyeballs thing. And one of the photos recovered from the camera in the tent does show a sort of indistinct human-shaped blur in the distance. But it is really, really badly out of focus. And it's probably just a shot of one of the other young men on the hike. One thing is for sure, the authorities certainly kind of hurried the investigation along. As I mentioned before, the head investigator, Lev Ivanov, has maintained for years that he was specifically told to ignore any reports of strange lights, UFOs, or weapons tests. His boss, Evgeny Okeshev, was told by a general who flew in from Moscow to stop investigating and shut the whole investigation down. And the head of the regional prosecution office, a guy named Leonid Proshkin, personally attended the first postmortem and then hung around for three extra days looking into things, which was highly out of character for him. This is a guy who really liked hanging out in his office. At least one local journalist was prevented by the authorities from filing his story on the incident and investigation as well. All of this may seem like a cover-up, but really it's just par for the course for the famously paranoid and propaganda-sensitive Soviets. But wait, wait, there's there's more. more. Interesting, the incident endured in the Soviet Union, and the investigation was reviewed from 2015 to 2019. All 400 pages of the original case notes were gone over in detail, and they reconstructed what they think happened. So, says this more recent reconstruction, 
The hikers got to Kolatsiak, the dead mountain, on the evening of February 1st, realizing they'd gone too far west and were up too high and decided to camp for the night rather than risk going back down in the dark. They put up their nine-person tent on an open slope with no nearby protection, even though it was snowing heavily and there were strong winds. Maybe they were tired, maybe one of them had a slight injury. While placing the tent, the snow underneath was weakened, and then heavy snowfall in the night added weight, which then caused the tent to lean to one side, which is why when people first found it, they thought it had been pitched incorrectly. And then the top started to collapse, and more snow piled on upslope and began to slide down towards the tent, an avalanche. They woke possibly because they heard the sound of the approaching avalanche, possibly because the snow on top of the tent was causing the opening to collapse, grabbed a couple of articles of warm clothing and sort of randomly and in a panic, cut through the side of the tent and ran out into the cold night. They went down to the woods for protection from the avalanche and built a fire, climbing the trees five meters up to break off branches to use for the fire. Some people have some clothes on, other people are pretty much just in their skivvies, and so they split into two groups, for some reason. Some tried to go back to the tent, but got lost and died of freezing before they could get there, trying to crawl through the deep snow while the temperature was dropping and the snow continued to pile up. The ones behind by the tree line also froze to death. The remaining hikers, who had gone further into the woods, fell into a snow hole, and from there into an icy stream flowing beneath the snow and the ice where they died. So, the new official cause of death is avalanche, plus really bad weather, and some pretty darned bad luck. They also did a little bit of victim shaming, saying that they had erected their tent in a dangerous area, and they should have known better, and that the decision to split up instead of building a snow shelter uh, was a mistake. A lot of the blame, says this recent investigation, falls on group leader Dyatlov, who they say lacked experience. However, he did not. The 2019 conclusions also say that the various conspiracy theories abounding about this night are the result of shoddy and incomplete work done by the original 1959 investigators. That's a lot of passing the buck, or passing the ruble, if you will. Others have gone to the area and looked around and concluded there's just no way it was an avalanche. The topography doesn't even exist for an avalanche to occur on this spot. And of course, since this is the new official explanation, a lot of people just automatically disbelieved it. One blogger, Valentin Degterev, says he can see a 30-meter-wide crater in satellite photos of the area about three kilometers from the hiker's tent site. He thinks the hikers were temporarily blinded by an explosion, possibly a weapon, and then stumbled out of the tent without getting dressed, unable to see, got lost, and then froze to death when they couldn't find their way back. To be fair, he thinks it was a missile that maybe had gone off course and hit there accidentally. He's not trying to say that they were targeted. And he also says such an accident would be embarrassing for the Soviets, and so that would be why it was immediately shut down. Just bad luck that the kids happened to be there when this happened. He also entertains another bad luck theory that it wasn't a missile, it was a meteor. The mystery continues to hold people's imaginations. I mean, you see, hear the setup for it, it almost sounds like a perfect movie or fiction beginning. 
There is a 2013 found footage style horror film made by Finnish director Rennie Harlan, the guy that did Die Hard 2 and Cliffhanger, among a bunch of other big Hollywood action movies. It's called Devil's Pass. Apparently it's not very good, but it follows the misadventures of five college students from Oregon who go to the Dyatlov Pass and try and figure out what really happened back there in 1959. And of course, they find a whole bunch of crazy stuff that eventually seals their doom. The film was based on Harlan's own research using the old Soviet archives that opened up in the 1990s, after the Cold War thawed, and his personal theory that it was, in fact, a Soviet government experiment that somehow went sideways. In the year 2000, a novella titled The Mystery of Dyatlov Pass by Anna Matviva mixes painstaking documentary evidence with fictional musings of one of the two women on the party, so it's kind of a combination of fact and fiction. However, many people treat it as if it's entirely factual, finding proof, quote-unquote, for their pet theories in the text. Interestingly enough, though, this is the single largest publicly available collection of actual documentary evidence about the events at the Dyatlov Pass. Man versus Wild The enduring mysteries of the Dyatlov Pass incident are, one, why did they cut themselves out of the tent, and two, what is with those injuries? Again, cracked bones, no skin damage, no tissue damage. However, (laughs) the fact is when humans go out into the wilderness, sometimes just weird and unfortunate things happen. There's the Hivrue Pass incident in January 1973 in the Lovozero Massive, way up in northern Russia near Murmansk in Finland, which claimed the lives of 10 hikers, all dead from hypothermia. There's the 1989 disappearance of the Soviet Klochkov tourist group in the Pamir Mountains in Tajikistan, who just vanished one day into the wilderness without a trace, though they did find a note along one of the trails at the Rigi Pass, so they know that they went that way, but after that, the trail went cold, somewhere around the Gadirsha Glacier. There's the Hamar Dabin Pass incident in eastern Russia in 1993 that killed six out of seven hikers. Hypothermia and protein deficiency was ruled as the cause of death. And obviously, it's not just in Russia. There's In the U.S., there's the Yuba County Five, which is sometimes known as the American Dyatlov Pass incident, though there aren't very many similarities. Personally, I like the infrasound theory put forward by Danny Icard. That, combined with some pretty bad luck, might account for most of the oddities of this case. But, I do have to say, I have zero training in anything relevant to (laughs) investigating the events at the Dyatlov Pass. And, like most people, I'm just simply looking for a narrative that satisfies me in some way. That's the one that satisfies me. But if you only have a hammer, every problem starts to look like a nail. And if you've got UFOs on the brain, for example, then lots of mysteries seem to point to them as an explanation for mysterious goings-on, or Yeti, or government weapons tests, or meteors, or what have you. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.